metaphor of a storm has been used many times to describe conflict. And it's a pretty good metaphor to use because conflict tends to expose us to things that we don't want to be exposed to. It makes us uncomfortable. It's like being out in the weather and feeling the rain beat down upon you and you feel the cold and the wind. And so conflict can be like a storm, but the thing is that often it's not just the external interactions with other people that's the problem. It's the storm that's raging within us, within our own heart, that's where the the real problems lie, right? Where the real tempest is found. Have you ever been in the midst of a, a conflict where there was enough stress that you felt the stress moving up and down your spine? That it brought you to the point of maybe depression or even exhaustion. It took the energy out of you. I remember the first hurricane that we experienced. We knew the storm was coming. And you could go to the stores and there was nothing on the shelves. The water was gone. The bread was gone. The milk was gone. There were other things that were gone too. Um, But you knew what to do. People told you, you know, go to a safe place in the house. And when the storm rolled in, you could see the, the weather change. You could see the light, the color of the light changed as the clouds came in and the wind picked up. And then evening fell. And it was nighttime, so it was time to go to bed, but that's when the storm really hit. And there in the dark, we could hear the howling of the wind and the rain beating down on the house, and you could hear the trees creaking. And then in the middle of the night, there were some things that I didn't expect, I hadn't prepared for. I heard this loud boom, and the ground shook. And then again, another boom. And then further in the distance, a little more faintly, boom, boom. Boom. And I didn't know what it was. It was something that I was like, well, I have to see what that is in the morning. You couldn't see or perceive even the things going on around you in the midst of the storm. There's things you don't understand. And then in hindsight, it makes sense. You go outside and in front of our house are two huge trees down on the ground across the front of our house. We couldn't even get out of the garage. And the Neighbors' houses, they, they didn't fare as well as we did. They had as many as eight trees down upon some people's houses. So there's these things that you see the effects of them afterwards. But, you know, you want to control it, don't you? You want to be able to know what's going on. And you want to be able to control the storm. That's kind of the natural tendency of the human heart. To want to control those situations. And in the conflict, we want to be able to show that we're Right? So we want to be able to know what other people are saying, understand what's going on, and then justify ourselves before other people to show that we're right and they're wrong. And so on the inside, when when people are talking about you, you've got this anxiety, and that leads to anger, and that leads to this desire for self-justification. And as you murmur on it, you begin to build false narratives about other people, don't you? you? You start to think about it, and you start to Try to fill in the holes. Think, well, this is what they're saying. This is what they must mean. And so now you have a truth, a false narrative that you've created in your mind about the other person. Well, sometimes people will even ask, well, is it true? If it's true, then that justifies passing it on. Well, I want to ask a different question for you this morning. What does it do to your heart? What does it do to you? 
David experienced conflict. We, we know that from the testimony of Scripture. It's all over the Psalms. And in Psalm 4, he is dealing with a specific kind of conflict. There's these verbal assaults that are being thrown at him. And he cries to the Lord in the midst of those trials and false accusations. So if you turn to Psalm 4 this morning, I'll read it in just a minute. So in Psalm 4, the background is verbal assaults that tarnish David's reputation. But the subject matter, the subject matter of the psalm is focused on our heart response to those situations. So in the passage, we'll see this cry for help. And then there's two major sections that come after that. First, David calls for instruction to those who are tempted in this sort of way, in, in sin, of anger, in response to conflict. And that's verses 2 through 5. And then we're going to see this comfort that comes to those who trust in the Lord. And that's verses 6 through 8. So David focuses on this heart response. He doesn't attempt to justify himself in this situation. He knows he's right, and he does call for vindication. But Psalm 4 preaches the gospel to us. So in the midst of anger and frustration leading to verbal attacks, that may be the situation, but the gospel is the answer. So I'm going to read Psalm 4. To the choir master with stringed instruments, a psalm of David. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your bed and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. There are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. In peace I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. And Lord, I thank you that your steadfast love does endure forever. And because you show the light of your face upon your people, we can dwell in safety. And so, Lord, in the midst of of conflict, we can be thankful despite our circumstances because your countenance shines upon your people. So, Lord, help us to come to the point of trusting in you this morning. Help us to see our situation rightly and to know that in you there is hope. In you, that's where grace is found. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. All right. So Proverbs 18 says, Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruits. It can take years to build a reputation, and then it can be tarnished rather quickly, can't it? Right. And that can be emotionally excruciating. So what do you do when you've lost your reputation? Recovery from slander is more than rebuilding your reputation or your good name. It involves our emotions and our heart and our personal character. 
So in a high-pressure situation, tempers can flare. And I, I've had a situation where I experienced a long and, and severe slander, and it took years to clear everything up. Somebody on the side, uh, unknown to me, had undermined some other people's trust in me by the things that they had said. And this can occur even without your knowledge. Has there been a time when you were slandered? How did you respond? The natural response is anger, frustration, a desire to get even, a desire to show that you're right and the other person's wrong, and ultimately judgment against the other person. Our natural response is to think that even those people who are on the periphery, who are just trying to figure out what's going on, that they're against you too. You become defensive. Have you experienced the discouragement of false accusations? And the anger that can come from that kind of conflict. Then I pray that Psalm 4 would be an encouragement to you this morning. The first thing that David does is he cries to God for help. In verse 1. To the choir master with stringed instruments, a psalm of David. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. It's so easy when you read through something like the Psalms to just read over these introductory words. It's almost like when you pray to God and you say, Dear God, and in Jesus' name at the end, right? You, these are just things you do and you kind of filter those things out as you read through something. Well, this isn't just an introduction. David is teaching us something about prayer here. He's modeling prayer for us. He says, Answer when I call. And so David pleads before the Lord that the Lord would hear him. And he says, God of my righteousness. He's reminding God of this relationship that he has with God and how God has been his help. In fact, he says, you have been a relief in my distress. And so he reminds God of his past faithfulness to David. And then he says, hear my prayer. He comes before the Lord in pleading and with boldness. And so he requests grace from God that God would hear him. So this isn't just a formulaic set of words. David is showing that he has this personal relationship with God. And when he is in distress, he can cry out to God for help. And brothers and sisters, you, if you are a child of God, when you're in distress, you can cry out to God for help. So do you cry out to God with this expectation that God will answer you? We, we can cry out to God, reminding God of, of his help in the past and of our relationship with him in this request that he will hear us. And then, so verse 1 is pointed towards God. He's addressing God. And then in verse 2, he turns and he addresses these people who would be slanderers of him. It says, O men, how long shall my honor be turned to shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? So what happens when your honor is defamed? How does that work? How does that come about? Right? He says, how long? He's crying for vindication from this personal humiliation that he's experiencing. And this is addressed to these people who are tempted to sin against him. 
They're angry with them. There's this point of conflict. And so David is crying out to them for vindication. Right? It's this appeal. It's full of emotion and from this point of distress. And then he gives us the situation, these vain words and lies. Right? So that gives us the background of the psalm, this honor that's turned to shame. And so how is honor turned to shame? Well, there is some connection between Psalm 4 and Psalm 3. They would have been said on the same day as a morning and evening psalm. And so the worshipers would have at least known them to be paired together. Now, it may not be the original case that Psalm 4 was written about Absalom, but Psalm 3 is. They would have at least, it would have brought Absalom to mind. Whether Psalm 4 is set in the context of Absalom or not, I, I still think Absalom is a good case study to look at to see how slander works. Okay, So the background with Absalom is there was some family conflict, there was sin, there were bad situations that happened, and Absalom ends up angry, and he seethes in that anger. And then in 2 Samuel 15, we kind of see his plan come to fruition. He makes himself look great. He gets a chariot and men to run before him to make him look like he's important and like he's got it all together. And then when people come to get their issues addressed with the king, he stands at the gate and he says, oh, no, you know, I don't think you're going to get what you want from David. David's not going to help you. If I were king, I would be able to help you. And so he turns their frustration into anger against David. He twists it. Right? So he builds himself up and he tears David down. And he uses his tongue in this evil way. So he builds this false narrative in his own mind, doesn't he? He says, you know, he's been saying this to himself for a while. And now he says it to other people. And he says, David's not going to bring you justice. But if I were king, I would bring you justice. And he says it enough times to enough people that people start to believe him. And they start congregating around him. And they start to believe it too, right? So this false narrative begins to work its way out into the lives of more people, right? Proverbs 6, 16 through 19 says, There's six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among his brothers. I think Absalom has all those summed up pretty well, doesn't he? Right? And then somebody else might say, well, shouldn't virtue be a bulwark against false accusations? And it should. You know, the ancient Christian apologist Athenagoras could say against the accusations of the Roman elite that they were idle tales and empty slanders because of the virtue of the Christians disprove their accusations just at face value. And virtue ought to be this bulwark against verbal attacks. And that should be a warning to us about the way we conduct ourselves in the world. And Peter agrees, 1 Peter 3, having a good conscience so that when you're slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame, for it's better to suffer for doing good if that should be good's will than for doing evil. So why does virtue not dissuade verbal attacks well it's sin right pride we want to be right we want other people to be wrong uh, there's a certain tribalism to that we want to be believe things that reinforce our opinion and we congregate with other people that are willing to reinforce that 
this curiosity. We want to look into other people's misery. Everybody wants to stop and see a car accident, right? So don't tell stories to yourself, right? People do this to justify themselves in their own eyes before others, but beware of objectifying others in a way that creates this one-dimensional view of them that doesn't describe them well. So some amount of charity is required there. So in the text, it's the king who is maligned here. The king is the one who is slandered. So another thing we, we need to understand about this is that David is a type of the Christ, right? His experiences, as recorded in the Psalms, point to the sufferings that Christ would suffer. Christ would be maligned, right? So this psalm operates on two levels for us. It points at the same application, right? The, the first is just straightforward reading. David is in distress. He cries out to God, and he points his attackers towards reflection and repentance and trust in the Lord. And he also expresses the comfort that those who trust in the Lord can find. And then there's this typological sense where David points to the sufferings of Christ. And we are to identify with those sufferings. And so that just is even more that we are to identify with Christ. And to understand that God will provide for those who are his. So the king is slandered, and we are to identify with the king. Jesus talks about this, you know, Matthew 10. If they called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? Um, Christ endured suffering for us, and we walk the same path. Peter and Paul consistently talk about our identification with Christ's sufferings. Paul quotes specifically, he quotes Psalm 4, verse 4, in Ephesians 4.26. This is one of those passages where he's talking about putting off the old self and put on the new self. Therefore, speak the truth with your neighbor. And that verse 4 is David talking, Psalm 4, verse 4, is David talking to um, those who would be his accusers and telling them, don't sin in this way, be careful. And then Paul is pulling that into Ephesians. And he's using it to address Christians. And he's saying, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. And so David gives us this pattern of crying out to the God for help in verse 1. It's a model prayer. And then he turns to address the people who are tempted to sin in verse 2. And he presents them with this choice. They can either pursue the anger that's on the path that they're going down. Or he gives them a better way in verses 2 through 5. Right? So he calls for instruction to those who would be slanderers. In verse 2, O men, how long shall my honor be turned to shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? The passage here in the following verses that we're going to be going through in a minute have five imperative verbs in them. And it really structures the middle of the psalm. These are five things that David is telling them to do. To know, to tremble, to reflect, to sacrifice, and to trust. Okay, so we're going to talk about each one of those. Know, tremble, reflect, sacrifice, and trust. So there's this contrast here between where the anger builds and ends up in slander and David encouraging this better way here. Okay. So the first one is in verse 3, to know. But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Right, so there's two kinds of people. 
The Lord has set apart the godly for himself. So there's those who belong to the Lord and there's those who don't. So there's this comfort in knowing that you belong to God, that you're a child of God. The, know, the, the, the Lord knows those who are his and he responds to their cries for help. So this is a bold statement that David is making to the people who would raise accusations against him because he's saying the Lord identifies with his servant. And specifically in a Christological sense, the Lord identifies with Christ, but we also identify with Christ in his sufferings. Right? The Lord identifies with his children and with his people. So when you bring an accusation against the Lord, well, when you bring an accusation against the Lord's people, you're bringing an accusation against him. Right? And then it says that the Lord hears when I call to him. So to those who belong to the Lord, they have this relationship with the Father. There's this covenantal relationship, and it's solidified by prayer, as demonstrated in verse 1. God's servant prays, and God will answer him. So their attacks are not just attacks against God's servant. They're also attacks against God. And this is consistent with our identification with Christ and his sufferings. And then in verse 4, it says, Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Now, the word angry there... Its basic meaning is tremble. Okay? And so th- this is a verse that gets people tripped up because they're like, well, is anger sin? Be angry and do not sin. How are you angry and not sin? And so some people say, well, it must just be a righteous anger. So have a righteous anger, but don't actually have a sinful anger. And I, I think understanding the base meaning of the word here as tremble is helpful in that respect. Because the point of conflict here is this restlessness that goes along with conflict. This frustration. This point of, of intense um, anxiety and angst. So it can bring forth full outright offensive anger. But what David is saying here is in the midst of, of your frustration and of your trembling, don't bring forth full anger here. And don't bring forth what eventually would become verbal attacks against other people. Right? So don't be controlled by the situation. <clears throat> Excuse me. Don't be controlled by the situation. Right? So what's the posture here? I, I think where David is heading is we're, we're setting up a contrast between those who would justify themselves in a situation, and those who are being called to self-reflection. Right? So that's where we're heading and pondering in our hearts. Right? David's encouraging this cycle that will eventually lead to repentance and trust. And James summarizes this well. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. So our, our anger tends to drive our actions. It's a very effective motivator, but it doesn't accomplish the will of God, does it? Okay. So therefore, David calls upon them to reflect. He says, be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your bed and be silent. So the, the word ponder there, it just means say, but say in your hearts, that's basically pondering. So it's, it's a good translation. What we say in our hearts, again, this is stripping away our need for honor, for saving face, for looking important. 
If, if you're standing before another person, we have this natural desire to look good in front of the other person. Even when our name is being maligned, we have this desire to put up this mask of righteousness in front of the other person. And here, David's telling him to ponder on their beds. So where you are before God in silence with no one else there, stripping all things away, stripping away any need to, to look good in front of other people, can you be honest and transparent before your creator? Ponder on your own, in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. See, a day of judgment is coming when the Lord will judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So when met with conflict, do you weep? Do you weep over sin or do you justify yourself in the midst of that conflict? We need to weep over our sin and over others who have been captured by it. And so David challenges us to self-reflection. And where do we stand before God in the situation? And it also says on our, on our beds, right? So th- this is a place where we can be honest and transparent before the Lord. But there's a, a setting for this psalm here. In the last verse, we're going to see that the person who trusts in the Lord can have peaceful rest. And the person who is struggling with this tension in their lives, they're pondering on their beds with some amount of anxiety and tension. Right? So what does it do to you, brothers and sisters? Where does the conflict bring you? Right? Does it bring you to this point uh, of, of anxiety and restlessness? Or does it bring you to the point where even in the midst of the storm, you can have peaceful rest? So, where we stand before God is what matters here. And it, it, it's not where you stand before people. And we need a better perspective to be able to address that, right? So, that requires reflecting on the matter to get a better perspective. And you can't see the water you're swimming in or, or you know, taste the air that you're breathing, right? When you've been in, in, in a place, in an atmosphere so long, right? You, you just don't notice the things that are there. So, there may be something unique, particular, or poisonous about the environment that you're in, and you don't even realize it. And so how do we gain this better perspective? We have to be able to step outside of ourselves in the situation. So to gain that better perspective through reflection, we come to the Lord, and we come to the Lord in, in worship and sacrifice, and specifically in repentance. So in verse 5, it says, offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. So this is a matter of the heart. How, how do you see God in this? When we come into worship, how do you respond before a holy God? And, and repentance is the fruit of pondering from the previous verse. So what I'm saying here is that sacrifice could be equated either with worship or repentance here. And, uh, and I think that sacrifice here is, is more associated with repentance but there's also this connection with, with worship, even in the Psalms. In Psalm 73, it's a great example. The first 15 verses of Psalm 73 is David, who is in turmoil over the fact that the righteous have good things coming to them. Or sorry, the unrighteous have good things coming to them. And the, the righteous are pushed down. And so there's this injustice in the world. And he's like, how do I make sense of this? It doesn't seem just. And then in verse 16, it turns when he comes into worship. He says, but when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. 
until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. So in verse 16, in coming into the presence of God, David gained perspective on the situation. Okay. So David's perspective changed when entering into worship, and repentance is this change in perspective about our actions in light of the reality of God's kingdom. And it goes along with trusting in God. So it's no surprise that the next thing David tells him to do is to put your trust in the Lord. Right? They're intrinsically tied to one another. They're, in a sense, two sides of the same coin. They're, they're different things, yet they're, they're really closely tied. Okay. So, trust. It's this imperative, right? So it's this last final imperative in this line of imperatives. We're moving from knowing, knowing where you stand before God, to trusting, trusting in the Lord. So God wants us to place our trust upon him. And David doesn't just say, do better next time, right? Just work harder at not sinning here. He starts with knowing. And then he talks about trembling and reflecting. And then he talks about repentance and trust. So there's this cycle that goes from know where you stand before God, tremble and reflect in light of the situation, and then come to God in repentance and trust. And does that sound familiar to you? David's remedy for those who caught up in anger that leads to slander is the gospel. Right? And so we have to fall back on the gospel in our lives together as a church and it has to fundamentally be what characterizes who we are as God's people. Jeremiah 17 addresses this really well, the, the issue of trusting in the Lord. And I would encourage you just this afternoon, go read Jeremiah 17. Verses 5 through 8. Thus says the Lord, Curses the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He is like a shrub in the desert. And shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. So that's the one who trusts in man. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is in the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots into the stream. And it does not fear when the heat comes. For its leaves remain green. It's not anxious in the year of drought. For it does not cease to bear fruit. So that's the one who trusts in the Lord. Both of them have the same situation. They're experiencing drought. The circumstances is the same for both cases. So what's the difference? It's where their trust is placed. One heart trusts in man and the other heart trusts in the Lord. So trust in Christ. Don't trust in the power to coerce others. Don't trust in asserting your strength through your words. Don't trust in claiming authority by falsely destroying the reputation of someone else. If you're angry, know your sin. Tremble in light of your sin and of the situation. Reflect on what is right in God's eyes. Recognize Christ as your sacrifice before a holy God. And trust in the Lord for your salvation. So having been called to trust in God, David now gives them some positive characteristics of what it looks like for the one who's trusted in God. And that's verses 6 through 8. They receive comfort In the midst of these circumstances. So in the midst of conflict, those who trust the Lord, they can expect to receive the light of God's face shining upon them. They can receive joy that comes from the Lord. And they can know the security that comes to those who have trusted in God. 
And that's verses 6, 7, and 8. So I want to read those briefly. There are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. In peace I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. So David doesn't give them different medicine than he is taking. The one who receives instruction in verses 2 through 5 will be like David receiving comfort in verses 6 through 8. So, or in the language of Jeremiah 17, the, the parched shrub gives way to fruitfulness. So the person who comes to God in the midst of difficulty will receive light and joy and security. So the comfort for the Christian is that even in the midst of difficult circumstances, God shows us the light of his face. Think about what that means. There are many who will say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O God. So the many who say, there's a, there's a contrast here in this verse. The many who say, that's the general population, or at least those who are coming against God's anointed. And they desire some goodness from God, right? But they desire goodness apart from trusting in him. So they, they want some amount of goodness, some good things in this world. There's many who say, show us some good, O Lord. And then here's the contrast. Lift up the light of your face upon us, O God. And so David is saying, what I need is the joy of your countenance. Think of a father who smiles upon his children with joy. Right? And so in contrast to those who want good things, material things of this world, David is asking for the light of God's face to shine upon him. And that is independent of his circumstances. Okay. And then, so we can be thankful that God shows us the light of his face. If you're tired, right, and upset, if don't place yourself, if you don't place yourself upon the Lord, then you will find yourself tossed to and fro by troubles. But to the faithful, even though they're tossed to and fro, they see the light of God's face shine upon them. So darkness is not dark to them because they see the light of his face. And then in verse 7, it's repeating this contrast again, but it's giving us a little more information this time. You've put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. And so where does this joy come from? God is the one who's put this joy in their heart. Right? And what's the contrast here? They have good things. They have their grain and their wine. But to the one who trusts in the Lord, their joy is from the Lord. Right? So those who look for goodness without God, they will find their temporary joys of the world. But David finds more joy in the Lord than they find in their, their wine and food. So even... For those who have every physical need supplied for them, they don't have this joy. And so this joy comes from the Lord. It transcends David's circumstances. We can be thankful that joy abounds to those who trust in God. So when the world is crashing down upon you, can you find joy in the Lord? We will not find peace until God has shown his favor Towards us. David's joy is found in the Lord, and it's looking forward to even the things that are promised in the next verse, where God provides security. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep, for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. 
So even if David was alone and without the protection of armies and horses, he could sleep. That's amazing, isn't it? That he could rest. He could find peaceful rest. So the one tempted to sin, they're wrestling on their bed with their anger. Right? They're in the middle of their anxiety. And the one who trusts in the Lord finds rest despite the storm raging all around them. They are safe in the storm. Okay. Now, the, the word peace here is shalom. And you've probably heard it said before that shalom has additional connotations of meaning, of wholeness, wellness, completeness, well-being. And that's true. And I would say it's especially true in this verse based on just the context of the verse. So this isn't just living at peace as if hostilities have ceased here. This is having wellness, wholeness that can only come to the person who's trusted in the Lord. And dwelling in safety, David's safety was not from the circumstances. It was from the comfort that can come from the Lord even in the midst of difficulty. So the implications for shalom for the Christian life here, it's different than happiness. We have to change our perspective on it. It's blessing and wholeness and completeness. It's peaceful rest. In Matthew chapter 5, the Beatitudes, Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my name's sake. It's consistent with uh, what Jesus is trying to say in the Beatitudes. Be thankful for peaceful rest that the Lord gives to those who belong to him, even in the midst of the storm. So the psalm begins with this request for help, but it ends with this declaration of trust that God brings us into goodness, joy, and wellness. Right? So are you tired? Have you struggled to see the mission of God reflected in your difficult circumstances? Turn to God's word. Wisdom meets real life in the middle of difficult circumstances like this. And as I go through life and I see more circumstances that, of conflict, I'm amazed by the wisdom literature in the Bible. I'm amazed by the book of James and also by the Psalms. And you have to read them slowly to unpack them, to understand them well. Right? You can't just read through them quickly. So I'd encourage you to, to see the value in wisdom and poetry and to read it slowly, to turn it over in your head again and again, to let it change you. To let it mold the person who you are. And so that when the storm does come, you already have this life habit that has molded and shaped you over time. And in the midst of the storm, you receive the joy that comes from the Lord. From having turned over the wisdom of God in in your mind. All right. So the gospel is all over this psalm. David cries out to God like somebody who has trusted in the Lord for their salvation. And then in the midst of conflict, he calls for instruction to those who are angry to repent and place their trust in God. And then he expresses comfort that can only come to those who have placed their trust in the Lord and know him as Savior. So are you distressed this morning? Are you someone who has suffered under verbal attacks? It can be a painful experience, but I'd encourage you to cry out to God. The, the Psalms show us again and again how David cries out to God in the midst of difficult circumstances. Are you angry? In the midst of trial and discord, does your heart respond with anxiety and fear and a desire to justify yourself in that circumstance? 
Ponder on your own beds and be silent. Come to the Lord and sacrifice and trust. If you don't know the Lord, then turn to him this morning. And are you anxious? Have you fallen into loose talk in the past? Don't poison your own heart with a false narrative about someone else. View people as created in God's image rather than objectifying them. We perceive an enemy as a meme and then we despise them in our hearts. Brothers and sisters, this should not be this way. We know a truth, but we don't live in shalom in light of that truth. We sometimes live with this disconnect between what we know and who we trust. So the gospel is a remedy for our loose talk. Weep over sin. We need to stop living as though we functionally don't believe the gospel. So when you're overwhelmed, cry out to God. And when you're angry and in conflict, turn to God in repentance and faith. Right? This psalm gives us this example of the gospel for everyday life. And when you're anxious, there's rest for those who trust in the Lord. And as the song we sang this morning says, his steadfast love endures forever. Right? May the fullness of God's peace fill your hearts. And may you experience the joy that comes from the Lord when he shines the light of his face upon you. And may you look to the Lord and dwell in safety. This podcast is brought to you by Redeemer Church, a community of believers in Fort Worth, Texas, committed to equipping God's people to delight in God's glory and declare that glory to our neighbors and the nations. For more information, visit our website at RedeemerFortWorth.org.